says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. And Father, we just humbly ask as we continue now to worship you and worship your Son, that your Holy Spirit would help us to continue worshiping in spirit and in truth as you want us to. So we ask, as you've given us the truth of your word, by your Spirit's inspiration, that you would prepare us accordingly and that, as always, your Spirit would be our teacher to hear what the voice of God would say to us through this passage of Scripture this morning. Bless your word and speak to us, Lord. We want to hear and we ask in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, as I have walked with the Lord, I have found in my own Christian experience that oftentimes spirituality and practicality tend to work hand in hand. You know, the Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 after giving us a lot of doctrine about what it means to be saved it then says to us to walk worthy of the calling with which we have received uh, that once we have been called into a relationship with Jesus Christ that that then begins to look like something we're to honor the one we've entered into a commitment with by walking worthy of the one who's called us into that commitment and the book of James really is a practical instruction manual for doing just that to help us to walk worthy of the calling that we've received to be a follower of Christ now as we begin a new study this morning if you'll bear with me for a few minutes I certainly want to make a few introductory remarks to sort of set the context and better understand understand the book of James as we begin to study it together. First of all, who is this writer the Holy Spirit uses James to record this book? Because James is a common New Testament name. We read of a number of different James uh, in the New Testament scriptures. This is not James, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder, those two individuals who were part of the 12 disciples and apostles that traveled and ministered with Jesus. This is James, who would really technically be the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when I say the half-brother, of course, what I mean by that is same human mother as Jesus, but obviously a different father. Uh, the Bible makes it very clear that though Jesus was conceived miraculously by God the Father in the Virgin Mary, and he therefore was birthed as a virgin birth, that after that occasion, Joseph, who became Mary's husband, they went on to then have natural children. And so therefore, uh, Jesus and James, who we read here, would have the same mother in Mary, but two different fathers, God the Father being the father of Jesus, of course because he was fully divine and fully man and James this writer here having Joseph as some of the other siblings we know from the gospels in Mark chapter uh, 6 verse 3 Matthew 13 verse 35 it tells us that Jesus had brothers and sisters uh, it tells us this that they said of Jesus is this not the carpenter the son of Mary the brother of James of Joseph Judas Simon and are not his sisters, plural, here with us. And it says that the Bible indicates, notice, that apparently at least we can say there, if he had at least two sisters, that Jesus had quite a considerable size family he came from. At least four brothers are mentioned, James being one of them. Two sisters, because it's mentioned in the plural, which means Jesus was raised in a natural family environment. I don't know about you, but that must have been really unique 
for his siblings. I mean, we, we think it's bad. Why can't you be a little more like your older brother? I mean, can you imagine for James and people what it was like to have been raised with having Jesus as your older brother? I mean, moral and ethical and never sinning, literally, and doing everything right. And, and to, to try and at some point as well, giving consideration, to have to reconcile that your brother is actually God in the flesh, that he's the Lord, that he's the Messiah. In fact, the Bible tells us very clearly that despite the constant exposure to the Lord, John chapter 7 verse 5 says that Jesus' earthly brothers did not believe in him. It was not until after the resurrection of Christ, it seemed, that they actually became born-again believers and genuine followers of Christ. They were offended and stumbled by the concept that their earthly brother is actually the Lord of glory or that he was the Messiah from God and the Lord and Savior. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that after Jesus resurrected, resurrected, he actually went and appeared to James who we're reading about here. And it seems at that point, James then became a genuine follower of Jesus as his Savior, as his Lord and the Messiah that he understood that. And James, we know historically, went on to become a very strong and devout follower of Jesus. Both tradition, church tradition, and the scripture, specifically the book of Acts, indicate to us he became a very godly man. In the book of Acts, we see that James became, it seems, one of the primary leaders, the elder or pastor, one of the primary ones in the first church there in Jerusalem. We also know from the book of Acts chapter 15 that James was one of the major voices that was listened to, his authority within the church when a matter came up concerning church doctrine and having to settle it. He was a very spiritually pious man. He actually earned the title. They would call him James the Just. Uh, and church tradition tells us that he was a very devout and disciplined man in his spiritual life, had very strong convictions, and probably because after you uh, had such a stumbling over Jesus, when he came to believe, he was probably pretty rock solid afterwards in what his convictions were. In fact, one of the nicknames supposedly church tradition tells us that he developed was that they used to call him Camel Knees. And the reason why it was said was because he would spend multiple hours a day on his knees in prayer and so his knees became sort of calloused and he sort of got this joking nickname camel knees so it's this man james that we're reading about here who's written this book under the inspiration of the spirit this godly man committed to prayer an established leader who now writes this very practical book to fellow believers giving instruction and you'll notice the writing in the book of james it's very straightforward. It is direct and candid speech. If there's one thing James did not lack, it was the gift of clarity. He said things very straightforward. He's very frank in his speech. He, we find him challenging spiritual hypocrisy. He, he confronts false spirituality and dead religion and reproves compromise within the spiritual life of the Christian. In fact, one man said, I quote, he said, James is designed to be a treatise against Christian hypocrisy. You'll notice the attitude of James as he writes his letter is if we confess to believe in Jesus and the word of God, then that ought to be demonstrated in our daily lives. It should look like something. It should be demonstrated in our behavior, in our decisions. A true and real spiritual life is what James is saying. It's going to demonstrate change, evidence, fruit of what it means to serve God. And James writes telling us in this book here really how to live practically. How to live as a mature, developing, growing follower of Christ. Whereas Paul the Apostle in his letters addressed Christian doctrine, Romans and Colossians and Ephesians, and Paul addressed a lot of the great doctrinal truths of the Christian faith, James primarily under the inspiration of the Spirit balances it out by talking about Christian duty and saying, listen, you understand how to be saved, but this is how a saved person is supposed to live. And this is how we're supposed to live in response to having a genuine relationship with Jesus. This is what a Christian looks like and lives like. So it's a book that insists upon a belief that behaves accordingly. 
So it confronts a lot of issues of Christian living. It's a Bible book designed to bring us into Christian maturity and help us to develop, to help us to grow and live in Christ-like maturity. So let's begin in verse 1. If you draw your attention, he opens by saying, James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how James introduces himself, which indicates the humility that he has, though a very spiritual man. He refers to himself here as James, a bondservant of God. He does not call himself James, the brother of God. He doesn't take any kind of fancy title. He doesn't say James, the chief apostle in the uh, Jerusalem church, the highest ranking elder. There's no position or title dropping. He's not trying to impress people with his credentials. We don't see here in James' attitude trying to let people know who he is or making sure everyone knows the ministry that he does or the works he's involved in or how important. He refers to himself by the title of a bondservant. It's the the term doulos. And the bondservant, the doulos in the Greek language, was not the forced slave, but it was the person who chose to be a slave for life. It was the term for the individual who willingly subjected themselves to the authority of a master for a lifelong commitment. They weren't forced by compulsion to have to be a slave or a servant. They chose to serve another and submit themselves to another's authority. And that was how James viewed himself as a bondservant of the Lord. And I think that's real he preferred to be viewed. I'm just another fellow bondservant of my Lord Jesus. That's what I am. I'm a servant just like you. And notice who the letter is addressed to in verse 1. He writes to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Now that tells us that this is one of what we call a general epistle. The word epistle again meaning uh, letter. One of the general letters. And by that we mean it's not written to a specific church. It's not written to a specific congregation in a certain city or locality like a lot of Paul's letters. The book of Romans written to the church in Rome. Colossians to the people of Colossae. Galatians to the church in Galatia. This is a general epistle. It's a letter addressed to a broader group of believers. And then it was typically circulated around the territory. So that's why he addresses this letter we see here. It's written to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Now the reference there of the 12 tribes indicates it seems that James is likely writing to Jewish Christians. To those who were Jews that came to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And as I said, remember, James was the pastor and leader in the first Jerusalem church which predominantly, not all, but predominantly was a Jewish congregation. Jews who had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And these believers, we're told here by James at this time, are scattered abroad. It's the term diaspora. It refers to seed that's been dispersed around. And no doubt what's being described here, many of these believers we know from the book of Acts, especially in the early church, suffered tremendous persecution and as a result of that they were pushed out of their current locations and though many of them did not go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria the other most parts of the world God allowed persecution to assist them in the process they were clumping together and staying together us four no more and no having a heart and so God allowed persecution to come against the early church and it forced some of these believers many of them to flee out of threat and fear to other locations and to have to resettle in other areas. They had to leave their comfort zone and move to new locations and resettle. But the Holy Spirit saw this as God allowing for seed just to be scattered around for for new growth and new opportunity. And James then says to them in verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy. He now begins to get to his instruction Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, because they had been pushed away from their comfort zones, certainly that brought challenges and adjustments and difficulties. Their lives were kind of unsettled. So he begins to address something that was very real for them, which was talking to them about the trials that they were facing. Now, trials is just a biblical word to refer to those unexpected, unplanned for, and let's be honest, unpleasant experiences 
that we all go through during our journey here on this earth. And you never notice, again, that trials, I use the word unexpected because it's not like you get an advance call and say, look, by the way, if you want to throw on your calendar there, take a little vacation because on the 15th, it's really going to get tough. There's, it's just these unexpected, unpleasant difficulties of life that we all must endure. They're hardships we periodically experience as a part of journeying through this planet until we ultimately depart from it. The challenging and stormy seasons we pass through, painful events that we all are forced to deal with. And we learn a few things about trials here from the Holy Spirit guiding James. The first thing that's very evident here in verse 2 is that trials are inevitable. They're inevitable, meaning that trials are something that are incapable of being avoided. In fact, you should circle in your Bible there in verse 2 to the word when you fall into various trials. He doesn't say, my brethren... Count it all joy if you should happen to fall into a trial. The idea is, is, you know, if this should happen to you, because it might not, if this should happen to you that you fall into some trials, then respond this way. Notice with trials, the God is very honest with us. It's not a matter of if trials will come. It's simply a matter of when trials will come. Because trials and challenges and hardships and tragedies and painful experiences of life, they're not elective courses. They're part of the core curriculum that all of us go through as we journey on this earth. They're mandatory courses for every person, and let me be very frank, and for every single Christian too. Do not listen to foolish individuals who promote the idea of a prosperity gospel, health and wealth, and if you're spiritual and you have enough faith, you'll never have problems. Try taking that to a third world country where people love Jesus, many of them, more than I do. And they have nothing and they're suffering and they're struggling and they love Jesus. And many of them, quite frankly, have way more faith than I do because they're surviving in those situations. Trials are something that we all experience. Christians are not immune from them. Jesus himself promised in John's gospel, in this life, you will have tribulation. Doesn't make it in Bible promise books. I've never seen that plaque in any of your homes if I've been there visiting. Beautiful picture. Maybe it's a good way to market a new Christian thing there. In this life, you will have tribulations. You can put tears and painful experiences on it. And, you know, as a Bible promise, though, we're going to have hardships. It's part of living in a fallen world. Life is hard. This is a sinful, polluted world by the sin of humanity, and there is sickness and suffering and hardships. The Bible says it's in heaven that there's no more tears or sorrow or pain or suffering. That's called heaven. This life has problems and happening to all of us. None of us are immune, not even the Christian. And sometimes our trials can be something that we unfortunately create for ourselves because in our sinful weakness, sometimes we make bad decisions. We make poor choices. We can act selfishly. And Galatians 6 says that he who sows to his flesh or his sin nature will reap corruption problems and difficulties and things that bring bad fruit into our lives and you can't sow to the flesh your sin nature and then just pray for crop failure the bible says that doesn't work bad choices result in painful consequences and there are times when we do personally contribute to our own trials and every one of us, I'm sure, if we had the opportunity, could mention a time or two when we, because of our choice or poor actions, have brought and created some trials upon our own lives. We've done our own Jonah thing and found ourselves in a storm because of our own foolish behavior or disobedient actions. And God at times will permit us to go through trials as the result of our own bad choices to bring correction, to help us not to repeat the same mistakes or to endure the unpleasant circumstances, to discipline or teach or allow us to see our error. And it's a part of what we do experience sometimes, our own caused trials. That being said, usually it's very evident when that's the case. And I think more often than not, trials and hardships and challenges and problems and difficulties honestly have nothing to do with our own personal contribution other than that we're still living on the planet. 
And a lot of times we're going through hard things and difficulties and it's nothing that we did. Listen, or it's nothing that you didn't do. Because sometimes we think that's why we're in a trial too. Oh, if I just would have, then this would have never happened. A lot of times challenges and hardships and problems are just a natural part of living in a sinful world. In a place that's hard to exist and includes periodic storms and it's something God had on his agenda for my life that he allowed for his greater purposes and his sovereignty and wisdom in ruling over all things. So trials are inevitable. Another thing we learn from verse 2 is that trials are also going to be different because notice he says, verse 2 in the text there, when you fall into, he says, various trials. That is, trials and hardships, they come in all different kinds, all different shapes, all different sizes. There are all different types of trials we can experience you know, losing a loved one, developing some sickness or health problem, suffering through that, loss of a job, a financial crisis, family problems, a marriage situation. I mean, we could just go on and theorize. There are so many different kinds of trials that exist. It's not always the same kind of trial. And more than that, the trials also have a varying duration to them. Sometimes you have a trial that just lasts about an hour. Those are my favorite kind. Then you have the ones that last a day or a week or sometimes a month or years. And they come in different measures. Sometimes it's a small trial. Sometimes it's a major trial. Different trials are part of passing the total course called trials. And, and there are different parts to the trial experience for God to work in us. And this is what we see because it's a part of a schooling of life experience. And, and, and I think in verse 2 to 4, he begins to address how do we deal then with these trials? He says, count it all joy, verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its work that you may be complete lacking nothing so notice something else here's something important in regards to trials they're not just inevitable they're not going to be different in their durations and kinds and types but here's why because they're good developmental tools from god's perspective they're good developmental tools in the human life god uses challenges hardships struggles difficulties even tragedies he uses all these things as instruments to develop us for the good. That's why he says in verse 2, to count it joy when we fall into various trials. That word count, it's an accounting term there in verse 2, how you add things up for a result. That's what an accountant does. Once a year, we have an accountant do a review of our church finances. That's the idea. You, you have somebody review things, evaluate, and from that evaluation, they then from that evaluation produce or, or add up ultimately to a perspective on something and he's saying this is the same way with trials it's not well great a trial i mean the guy's not sadistic or weird well, oh right a trial yeah i love trials that's not the idea he's saying the reason we can be joyful in trials is because we can know by evaluating and counting and measuring and, and, and adding up what's this trial going to result in good for me god because the Bible read promises in Romans 8 that we know that God works all things together for the good to those who love him and called according to his purpose. So we can add up and measure up and evaluate and say, I wonder what this is going to add up to ultimately, Lord. And there's a sense of being able when we face a trial to be able to have a measure of rejoicing in that. Again, we have an option how to respond when the trial comes. We can't control maybe the circumstance outwardly, but I can control my inward condition when the trial comes. I do have control over how I respond to the trial when it comes into my life. We can angrily resent it and rebel and you can get bitter towards God and just become resentful and hard and turn away. Or sometimes a trial comes and some Christians, they, they foolishly react in just fleshly ways. And they take as, well, if this is going to happen, then I got a right to just do this. And so then they just react in the flesh as if somehow it's justified to you know, act out in inappropriate ways and frustration because of what's happening in their lives. But God wants us to rejoice in the midst of it. 
to rejoice by saying, Lord, I'm thankful that though I'm in a trial, I'm not walking through the valley of the shadow of death alone. I have someone to help me in my trial. I have someone to guide me and to assist me and to strengthen me and to have a spiritual perspective. God, you're working in the midst of the fire and the fire hurts, Lord. It burns, it's hot, it's hard. But I thank you, Lord, that I can worship you and this isn't a waste and that you're going to orchestrate something good in the end and and you're going to accomplish something. So therefore, we can rejoice because he says, verse 3, knowing something. Because we as Christians can know that the testing of our faith produces patience. See, it's that understanding that helps us rejoice in it. That we can know our faith, our confidence and trust towards God or our reliance upon the Lord, which let me say is the most important attribute and virtue we possess in our lives, our faith. That that, the Bible says here, is actually being tested. Like a precious or valuable metal, it's being purified or refined. Peter, writing about trials, says, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith which is much more precious than gold that perishes, though test by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Just like fire would be used for valuable, precious things like gold and silver, to refine it, to bring the impurities out of it, to make it stronger and more valuable, the Bible indicates in the same way our faith, our trust in the Lord, our confidence, in the same way it's subjected to fiery trials to reveal things about our faith. Sometimes to reveal to me, you don't trust God as much as you think you do or as much as you say you do or to reveal impurities in my heart that I thought, oh, I I was at the pastor's conference last week and they asked us to, at one point, pray together with another. And right away, as we were listening to the message, would you pray for me for this? Because I realize that this part of me is still so corrupt, so carnal. The way I respond to individuals. And oftentimes we can think, oh, I'm I'm here. And then then God just turns up the thermostat just a tiny bit. And all of a sudden we realize, I don't have as much patience as I thought I did. Or love as I thought I did. Or I'm, I'm still so proud or so arrogant. Or Lord, here something happens and instantly I turn to this as the solution instead of praying and waiting upon you to work in the situation. And sometimes this is what trials do. They, they reveal things to help purify us and strengthen us. He says here, God is using these trials to produce. Do you see that word? Produce something in us. God is using it to accomplish a goal despite how it looks to us or feels to us when we endure the hardship in life. It's not meaningless. That feels so much better, even though it stinks to have to deal with hard stuff. To know that we're not just suffering in vain with no benefit. God is a good steward and he's resourceful. And though we're going to go through hard things in life because it's just part of living, God's not cruel and uncaring and he's very constructive in the hard times. Which is a wonderful thing. He says the testing of your faith produces patience he says there that word patience isn't patient in the sense of like oh I can be patient to wait for a minute or two it's really the term better translated perseverance it's a reference to producing endurance which is the ability to keep going without giving up the term that James uses there in the original language is a term which refers to a steadfast ability to bear up under heavy weight or pressure That is that you can be under something very heavy, very crushing, but you're able to bear up and endure without crumbling. You learn how to endure hardship and to remain faithful in the midst of it. The idea is, in contrast, to not be crushed by it, to remain stable and consistent spiritually and in your life, in contrast to just falling apart when the trial comes or flaking out or fleshing out, as we might say sometimes as Christians. That instead, we can bear up under it. And endurance and faithfulness is not something that's developed by just education alone. Somehow you can take the, you know, the, the correspondence class and just do a little online, okay, listen to those three lectures, and there you go, I'm, I'm, I am spiritually faithful now. 
I have endurance. I'm a man of perseverance. Perseverance and endurance comes through experience. I, I played soccer a whole time I was growing up and I found that we needed endurance for when games went long or times got hard. But we didn't develop endurance as soccer players by my coach sitting us down and giving us lectures with the three best points on endurance. What he did do was he would subject us to stressful exercise that nobody liked and it was very hard, but that's how endurance was developed. Well, the same is true spiritually. Romans 5 says we glory or celebrate in tribulation. Listen, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance develops character and it's character that gives a person hope in their life. It's well been said before, problems are often the price of progress. I don't like that, but it's kind of true. <laughs> problems are often the price of progress. And that's why trials are something really that should be yielded to, not ran from and resisted. That's why he says there in verse 4, let patience have its work. That, that's a reason word, so that you can become complete, perfected, matured, lacking nothing. He's saying let and allow the development of perseverance happen. Let it have its work in you. Allow it to do its work within you. Let it accomplish. The experiences help complete me and you as a person, adding into our lives what we currently lack as individuals. The idea here is building character. Let it work in you. Let it accomplish its purpose because where you're lacking character, God's trying to work it into you. And he's trying to produce this within you. And if we lean into the process and embrace it, we'll develop and mature and we'll grow. We'll become more Christ-like. We'll develop better qualities. We'll overcome some bad habits. Praise the Lord. We'll begin to find ourselves growing up. We'll become a more well-rounded person. Someone who's more stable and consistent in our spiritual life. I think that's why James under the Spirit says, let it have its work in you. Let it work. And I think this is the reason why. Listen, because we all dislike the shaping process, right? We don't like the shaping process. We don't like the pressure cooker. And so oftentimes we find ways to avoid trials. Something hard comes into our life or maybe we find ourselves subjected to pressure in a situation in our job or with relationships or circumstances and problems arise. So what do we do? We run from it. We escape from it. Oh, pressure, pressure, problems. Boop, abort. I need to leave. I need to run. I need to get away from here. I need to get away. And, and we run from the pressures, the problems, and we hit abort sometimes prematurely and we resist pain and struggle and we miss the opportunity to let it work in us. Or sometimes in our lives, sadly, pain and struggle happens and even Christians, we turn to wrong coping mechanisms and we're trying to cope with the pain or the problem. And listen, I understand. I'm not diminishing pain or problems but we turn to wrong coping mechanisms. So we begin to use this sinful behavior or this wrong habit or some substance and we, we turn, even Christians, to wrong coping mechanisms instead of looking to the Lord and experiencing, listen, it's okay to experience pain. Suffering's not wrong. There's a part of the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ we are supposed to experience as Christians. And these things have a divine and a good purpose at times in our lives. We're always trying to medicate or eradicate every form of suffering from our lives because we think it's always a wrong thing. It's a part of life experience and something God can use. Sometimes we have to let our faith be tested so we can grow, so we can develop and experience God's best for us. And I know, we, but it's hard. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to handle it. Listen, I've been there before saying the same things. And that's totally understandable. I think it's why James goes on in verse 5 to say, as you navigate the stormy seas, God wants to help you. He says, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So James, this deeply spiritual man, gives very practical advice in regards to needing direction and wisdom. Again, wisdom is different than knowledge. Knowledge is the acquisition of, of facts. It's information. 
And we all know very intelligent fools. Correct? You can know a lot of information. I know incredibly intelligent individuals who have no common sense or live their lives horribly and make a mess of their lives. Wisdom is the way of how to live well. Wisdom is taking knowledge and, and, and actually knowing what to do, making good judgments and decisions, how to live. And he says, if you lack wisdom, that word lack is a banking term again, it speaks to have a shortage in one's account. And if we were all to be honest this morning, who doesn't feel like that their bank account is drastically deficient of wisdom? Well, we all find that in our lives. And all the more, right, when I go through a challenging time. We go through something that is harder than just normal calm seas and then the seas get stirred up and life gets stormy and it's hard and we're tossed here and there and all of a sudden we're going through challenges and then we realize I really lack wisdom now because it was challenging enough when the seas were calm and the winds were blowing my direction. Lord, I don't know what to do now that everything is contrary and the world's tossed all over. And whether it's our standard circumstances or a sudden crisis, we find ourselves not sure what to do. How do I, how do I handle this, Lord? Well, I want to make the right decisions. What's the right way to go about this? Again, maybe it's just some situation you're facing. Maybe it's marriage. How do I go about this, Lord? How do I handle this? I don't know how to respond to my spouse or relate. Lord, how do I... We're, we're child raising. Oy vey. Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, I thought there was just vanilla and chocolate and then a third one comes and it is strawberry swirl major crater blast. And you go, what? This, I, I just, there's a vanilla and chocolate. I didn't know there was another flavor. How do you do this, Lord? How do I raise them in the way that they're to go and to guide them and, and not necessarily to try and mold your children into what you want, but to unfold them and to unpack them because God's uniquely wired them for who they are and to teach them how to be who they are but follow Christ and be what the Lord's calling them to be. How do you do that? How do you manage the you know, time management or a hardship or a trial when it comes or a job situation? Lord, I need wisdom, a financial decision, ministry, all these different things. We find ourselves, we want to act rightly. We want to handle things properly and do what honors God and make the best decisions and navigate it. Well, James says, when you lack wisdom, he says, let me keep it simple. Go ask God. If you lack wisdom, he says, ask God, that's a simple way of saying when you lack wisdom, you got to pray. You got to go seek the Lord, James is saying. This man of tremendous prayer, he says, we got to confess to God. We don't know what we're doing. God, we don't know how to handle this. We admit we're not sure the right decision and, and we want to walk in your wisdom and do your will, but we need direction. We need clarity. We need understanding. We want discernment. We want to do what's best, Lord. We don't want to just do what's good. We want to do what's best. And we don't know how to process this situation we're facing. Oftentimes we find ourselves dealing with things and we're so prone to just act and to just do something, to try and bring resolution. And sometimes God's saying, don't act. Ask. Try asking first. Ask first then act according to what God shows you. Or we react prematurely. The, the term ask there, interestingly enough, is in the present tense. It means to keep on continually asking. Uh, Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. And notice James 1.5 here, this is a promise. He says, wisdom will be given generously, freely. Proverbs 2 says, the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. But again, notice the source, the Lord gives wisdom. James says here, ask of God. Ask of God when you lack wisdom. Often, let's be very honest, we're very prone to ask others. We're very prone. We don't know what to do. So we seek out counsel and guidance. We call somebody up again. We, and, we go, and we're always asking one another, but we never directly a lot of times go to God. It tells us in Jeremiah 33 that God says this, Ask of me and I will tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. In essence, God is saying, could, could you give me a shot to be God? I mean, I've, I, I, mean, I know he's pretty experienced. I mean, he seems like a really wise guy, but honestly, I've been running the universe since creation. I've seen that problem once or twice before. Helped a few people through it pretty successfully. And God says, would you ask of me? 
I know things that you don't know that no one knows because I'm God. And how oftentimes, sadly, we can even pray and then we run off to ask someone else what to do afterwards. Don't, I don't want to diminish the value of godly counsel. That's not what I'm saying. God does speak through people. There is a time and a place for that and wisdom is found in a multitude of counselors, certainly. However, do we honestly believe God's word? Do we really take God at his word at times when we don't know what to do? Because I tell you something, we will never know that unless we walk it out sometime. Unless you come to a place where you say, Lord, I need wisdom. I don't know what to do. And Lord, I'm coming to you. And I believe you're going to give me enlightenment. I take you at your word that you're going to give wisdom and you're going to answer your promise here. And what a wonderful thing when God does it. And God gives you supernatural wisdom from his spirit, from his word as you seek him and you know what to do and you're able to act in that situation. Well, verse six says, but when we ask, he says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. So the Bible indicates we have to have a proper heart condition when we come to God seeking him for wisdom or really for anything. He says we must ask, but ask in faith with no doubting. There is a heart condition that's a prerequisite, the Bible indicates, to receive from God. That is God honors faith. God, God channels his promises and his power through a, a person with a believing heart, having confidence, assurance we will receive. The idea is actually believing God's going to answer when we pray. Having an expectant heart. In a sense, I think you might say if we were to illustrate it, it's through the funnel of faith that God pours his promises into people's lives. It's through the funnel of faith that God pours his promises and pours his power into people's lives. It says in Romans chapter 4 of Abraham that he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, being fully convinced what he had promised he was able to perform. Like Abraham, we have to come to God in faith initially and then wait in faith expectantly. God, I've asked and I believe you have the power to perform it. And I believe that you honor your promises. So Lord, I'm asking, believing that you will and you can give me wisdom. Even if no one else gives me one iota of input, God, I believe you can enlighten me. I believe you can give me wisdom and give me direction for this situation in my life. So he says, ask with faith, with no, he says, doubting. And you could say in a sense, doubt is kind of like the cholesterol blockage in the artery that runs from God's loving and giving heart into the life of people that he wants to help. That's what doubt becomes in our lives. It interferes, he says, with no doubting. That is no second guessing. It's diacrino in the Greek. It's a term that means to sort through to try and distinguish between two things. And what he's trying to imply there is going back and forth. The idea is, is we come to God and we go back and forth. I, I, well, I'm sure he's going to answer. I don't know. You think, I'm not sure if he's really going to answer. And we kind of waver and vacillate and go back and forth. And we try, sometimes we pray and then we evaluate things mentally and we create a civil war in our mind. Because we're trying to reason things out logically and that contradicts a heart of faith. And he says in verse 6, the one who has this doubting heart becomes just like a metaphor, vivid, a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Now, go down to the ocean. Waves are very unpredictable. They're unstable. They're not always the same. They're, they're, they're what we would call inconsistent because they're directed by the winds that push against them. They're tossed about, constant changes. And he says, this is what happens to a life of a person who's not trusting but continually diacrino doubting and trying to go back and forth all the time trusting God not trusting God believing God not believing God he says verse 7 for let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord he's a double-minded man unstable in all his ways so James warns that God may actually withhold his answer his in a sense assistance if a person is not asking in faith God will at times perhaps refrain from giving what that person is after because their heart is not in the right condition. He's going to say in chapter 4, sometimes people even ask, but they ask amiss, and that's why they don't receive. The Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to believe, uh, to receive from God and to please God. 
that we have to believe he exists and that he is a rewarder. And sometimes we can even make the mistake of asking God, but really we're not intending on doing what God says anyway. Because we doubt that God really knows best. And so therefore we default back to our own ideas. Well, James describes such a person in verse 8 by saying one who does this becomes a double-minded man. The idea there is is two minds or two souls. It speaks of the place where we make our decision and our wills. And he says a person who does this is someone, it's like they have two different minds. They're always changing their mind. They're always vacillating back and forth, contradicting themselves, saying one thing, doing another, continually wavering about choices. They're, they're continuously indecisive. They're, they're never able to commit and follow through. They're always hesitant to pick something and go forward or stay with it. And even if they take a step forward, they very quickly change and, and turn around and go back in a different direction. And there's kind of this picture. I mean, they almost become like the college student who's forever in the status undecided. And they just perpetuate that pattern in life. Constantly living in a status of, of changing their mind, chasing the next thing, chasing after the new thing. They're marked by being an indecisive individual. Always fluctuating. They never commit to anything and therefore they never carry through with anything. And he says the result of this being double-minded, they become unstable in all their ways unstable in all their ways that is they're never at rest they're never able to settle down make progress get traction they become unreliable and unstable and notice he says unstable in all their ways see because when a person begins to have a life that's marked by personal instability it influences all their ways they become mentally unstable and a person just begins to just always be short-circuiting mentally and they're depressed or anxious or, and they're just, they just become unstable mentally because of this problem. They become unstable emotionally. They're always worked up and it's like a, a constant hurricane of emotions going on in their lives. They become unstable spiritually. They're up, they're down, they're inconsistent, they're hot, they're cold. And it begins to just feed into their relationships become unstable, their circumstances, their life patterns and habits. Some Christians, let me be frank, they're kind of like fishing bobbers out on the ocean water. They're up, they're down. They're gravitating here, they're gravitating over there. They're pushed this way with the current, that way with the current. They live an inconsistent life. And let me say, honestly, that is a mark of Christian immaturity. That is a mark of immaturity. Being a double-minded person, unstable in all your ways, pushed by your feelings, gravitating here, gravitating there. God desires the opposite of what this verse describes. God desires that you would get over your insecurities, that I would trust him, that I would listen to him, and as a Christian, like a rock-solid God, I would begin to live a stable life a stable life that the Lord can build upon and work through and bring stability in an unchanging or constantly changing world. Well, let's finish up verses 9 through 11. James is here just briefly going to give an example of a perspective difference that people have compared to the perspective that God often has. And in essence, this is what he's going to address. Oftentimes we think it is such a horrible thing to be poor or to have less financially and it is great to be rich and to be wealthy. And the Bible shows us that often from God's perspective, the viewpoint is much different. Look what he says. Let the lowly brother, the one in poorer or less beneficial financial conditions, glory, celebrate in his exalted position. The poorer Christian who may be living at a lower status financially, the Bible said should actually rejoice because they kind of have an exalted position spiritually. And here's how that works. Because they lack materially, often that's a true help to their spiritual life. Because guess what they know how to do? Pray. Trust God for things. Because they don't have the resources and therefore they have to live dependent upon the Lord. They understand how to live by faith. They know what it means to really look to God for everything. And to trust God to come through. And they're sensitive. They have less to rely on because they have less resources. And they also don't have as many earthly distractions because they don't have as many things to be distracted by. 
And so often they're more sensitive spiritually many a times. And basically what seems like a disadvantage from an earthly point of view, God says, not from my viewpoint. God says that's actually kind of an exalted position because it helps you to be assisted and have an advantage spiritually. Now on the flip side of that, he says, but the rich in his humiliation or low position because of the flower of the field, he'll pass away. For no sooner is the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers, its flower falls, and the beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. In contrast, James is saying those who are rich often have struggles that people don't recognize. They have a struggle of keeping a proper perspective on themselves, maintaining humility, guarding against materialism, not getting caught up in worldly pursuits that they're able to pursue because guess what? They have the money to do it. Jesus said that it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. The Bible warns of the deceitfulness of riches. So a wealthy Christian, in essence, should be very grateful if they know Jesus that the Lord brought enough humility and humiliation in life to realize that though they have all this stuff, they have the same poverty of heart as every other person. And so here the Bible says... The rich person has the challenge of continually seeking to keep in mind their wealth is not always an advantage to the spiritual life. Because see, when someone has wealth or excess finances, sometimes that's a disadvantage to the spiritual life because it becomes a stumbling block. Because a need or situation may come into their life and for them, they may not need to pray. They may not need to trust God. They can just write a check. So sometimes it becomes a stumbling block where they don't learn how to live dependent upon the Lord because it's so easy to just depend on the resources materially or financially that they have. And sometimes when there's excess financially, it's easier to pursue things. You can pursue this and pursue that and you have more material pleasures and ease of life and nothing wrong with these things in and of themselves, but the wealthy person has more opportunity to do more things because they can finance more things. But they have to struggle continuously because sometimes then that makes them forget and be eclipsed in their perspective that life's short. And don't get chasing after this and chasing after that and taking care of this and maintaining all that and you miss what really matters. Because like the sun quickly scorching what's on the earth and it dying out, life's short and everything is going to burn and fade away very quickly. Listen, in a healthy church, there should always be the existence of not only different races but rich and poor as well. The key is simply this contentment in the status God has put you in and realizing you have a part to play and being content and exercising what God has called you to do in that position and saying, Lord, whether it's hard or easy or whatever, Lord, you just give me the wisdom and help me to navigate my status and to play my part in the body of Christ. Let's stand, let's pray together.